0: sacred and undeniable fish and visitors stink after three days a pair of good ears will ring dry a hundred tongues we hold these truths to be self-evident you know tom i like that better
1: Welcome to Benjamin Franklin for President, the Podcast Gazette, an online almanac for your education and entertainment featuring Franklin Scholar, educator, and presenter, G. Robin Smith. Welcome, and may it do you good. Tell me,
0: and I forget. Teach me, and I remember.
1: Involve me, and I learn. From Ben's pen to your ears. Now it's time for Biography.
0: Today I would like to talk a bit about Joseph Plum Martin. Now this man was born November 21st, 1760 in the village of Beckett in western Massachusetts, where his 28-year-old father, Ebenezer Martin, was the recently ordained minister of a new congregational church. Joseph Plum Martin produced a diary of his time in the Revolutionary War, printed in modern times as Private Yankee Doodle, available in many bookstores and online. He talks about the ragged days of the Revolution, nearly half-starved, almost completely frozen, sometimes with barely any clothing or supplies, He marched, was ordered to hunt, to reconnoitre, to retrieve traitors, and he met with and shared times and hardships with some of the major forces of the revolution. Through his eyes, we see, forgive the term, the grunt's eye view of the battles. And whether or not any of the entries are fanciful, I leave it to you to read, but it is a marvelous accounting of the book. I'm glad it no longer lays in obscurity in some library in the northeastern country, but rather is now produced. It runs, in this edition, to about 300 pages, and they're full of delightful and sometimes very sobering views of the war. The New Yorker calls it worth its weight in gold. The St. Louis Post-Dispatch says, one of the best first-hand accounts of war as seen by a private soldier ever written. I recommend not only the book, but also its author, who lived through the Revolutionary War into the 1800s, where he was a venerated local celebrity and personality. Joseph Plum Martin, a name you should know from the American Revolution.
1: And now for Website of the Week.
0: I'd like to introduce you to Benjamin Franklin House, to be found at www.benjaminfranklinhouse.org. The website features... Possibly the only remaining structure where Benjamin Franklin actually lived, at his home on 36 Craven Street, London, City of London, in the United Kingdom. He stayed there with the Stevensons, Mrs. Stevenson and her delightful daughter, Polly, who became a second family to Franklin during his many years staying in England. And he kept up correspondence with them throughout their lives and even on his deathbed. Uh, Polly Stevenson, uh, who had Married since then, of course, and took a different name, but uh, Polly attended Franklin at his deathbed, along with Franklin's natural daughter, Sally. The Craven Street House is still in operation and still takes visitors and should be visited if you're there. And if you're not in London, visit it virtually through their website, www.benjaminfranklinhouse.org. And if you can... Contribute to its upkeep. It is to be noted that even Franklin's um, house in Boston, where he was born, is gone, and where he lived for many years, and Deborah lived certainly for most of her life, in Philadelphia, which is now called Franklin Square, was torn down not too long after Franklin's death to make way for basically um, urban renewal and public housing of sorts. Those buildings still exist, but the house itself is gone. However, there is still there a view into the basement areas, which were excavated, including some of the uh, pit near where the kitchen was, some storage areas in the old cesspit, which is very interesting to see into. And the Be Free Franklin Post office is still there, the only post office, so I'm told to not fly the American flag because it was founded before America. And across the hallway there, uh, National Park, of the printing building and print shop that Franklin built for his grandson, Benjamin Franklin Bosch. And with the printing press, I believe that is one that Franklin had built and is still in operation, uh, operated by the Park Service personnel there, very helpful, very friendly, and a delight to see. There are some pictures of me when I was in Philadelphia uh, that they let back there to be uh, posed there with the press that Franklin himself probably ran. Um, But a delightful place indeed. But the Benjamin Franklin House, go see it, support it, and learn about it. That's our website of the week. Good day. I didn't fail the test. I just found one hundred ways to do it wrong.
1: Hello, my name is Aaron Ziegler, and here we have arrived at the part of the show where, as if by a miracle aided by the muse of performance and wisdom, we shall appear to put forth questions to the man himself, Dr. Benjamin Franklin. Your life is something of a conundrum, You were awarded many university degrees, are regarded by some as one of the greatest scientific thinkers alongside Newton and Priestley, were the first ambassador for the nascent United States, spoke several languages, invented and discovered several important items, and yet you are not a product of an education system. You only completed two years of education? How is this possible? Well, I did
0: attend grammar school and Latin school. It was educated by such as Mr. Brownell, but self-education and a love of learning that extended throughout my life, of reading, of conversation, and of listening well, I think, helped to afford me to improve my mind to whatever extent I was able to. It really began in my youngest years, and this is something that I recommend to any listeners, especially those of you younger, which is to read widely and deeply as much and often as you can and now with your electronics you have the advantage of books on tape which are a marvelous addition to one's library for you can hear books even while you are doing other chores like washing your mother's dishes and such um, so i recommend that as well but for me i had not quite that ability but i did read as often as i could and kept that up throughout my life and As well, my father had the habit of bringing in guests to dinner. And he was not a wealthy man, but he was well-respected for his sage advice, his wisdom, and just common sense. Which is the name of a pamphlet I also recommend that you read. But my father, by inviting these people to the table and allowing his children to sit and listen and ask good questions, if we could manage ourselves, really helped teach me how to be attentive to what other people's stories were and to take from them the information therein and what their interest was in that information. For those two things coupled, the facts of a matter and a person's passion of the matter really helped inform me as to the importance of observation, of listening, as well as speaking and reading well. For indeed, you cannot really learn well by talking. You must learn well by listening and engaging others. So these are two of the things that I did throughout my life. I, I talked to people and I listened to what they had to say and asked them questions. I rarely learned when I was making pronouncements, but I did learn when I asked people for their ideas and their explanations and their thoughts. And they compared it with what sober minds wrote down in books of research, or even in books of fiction. Um, Books of fiction, by the way, were very important to our time. Tristram Shandy and the seminal work, uh, Robinson Crusoe, became quite part of the fabric of the, not only imagination, but of the culture of my time. And I recommend it. I understand it is still in print in your day, and probably both print and audio versions. It is true that I was eventually granted Honorary degrees from St. Andrews and Oxford, and also degrees from Yale and Harvard. But my formal education ended after about two years. My father pulled me out of school, some to help him in the candle shop, but also because I was becoming a bit, oh, irreverent, one might say, of the teaching. Most schools were run by a religious order, certainly Harvard and Yale were. Uh, the first non religious, or rather seculars, university of any sort or academy, was the one we began in Philadelphia, which eventually became the University of Pennsylvania. Until then, all colleges or universities really had a tie-in to a particular religious sect, and where the main degree that you were going for was that of a minister, usually. I wrote several scurrilous pieces, uh, ridiculing places like Harvard as being a wonderful place of education to learn how to enter a room well, how to open and close doors, well, and how to dance, well, but of no other practical value. Uh, this was, of course, a satire, and I'm certain that they've developed more use since then.
1: What was the education system like in your time?
0: There were, of course, the private schools, as I mentioned, the Latin grammar school, the Mr. Brownell's public Somewhat school, but uh, even that was run privately. You had to pay for it. And my father was able to scrape together enough money to send me there. There were no public universities yet. Um, Harvard, of course, uh, did did exist, um, as well as others, but uh, there was a universal lack of education given to girls. They mostly being trained in the home arts, and of course, in some of the countries of America, as we called the colonies, uh, individual countries. It was even illegal to teach slaves, the Negroes, um, and other people of certain classes uh, received barely any. Uh, but I advocated a little bit for the sake of argument for the education of of young women that they should be better able to run a business should their husbands die, as exampled by some of the print shops that I established in somewhat of a, I think you would call it, a franchise system. And the husband did pass away, and I found that when the wife took over, because she happened to be from the Dutch lands of Europe, she was taught accounting in her schooling, and for the first time since that agreement had been established with that printer, the accounts were brought up to date, and my payments were made most regularly. Um, And so... From that experience, I realized that women really should be taught more. And even back in the Juntao days, I did take the side of educating women to a higher degree. Although I did not provide much for my own daughter uh, in that way. She was fairly well educated, but I did encourage it in other women that I dealt with. Um, In particular, uh, of course, the uh, Polly Stevenson of the Stevenson family uh, was quite an a polymath in, in a minor sort, being very interested in all things. And I did encourage her to study uh, the sciences as such they were. But I also did mind her that she should also learn to do math. That was to add increase, to subtract nothing from a husband's estate, to be fruitful and multiply and let no division come between her and her husband. The idea of general education was not particularly well-practiced in most of the countries of America. However, after the Junto, my social group of like-minded individuals, helped propose the idea for a lending library, and many other companies were founded and helped disseminate information and reading to the general population, it was felt that the citizenry of Philadelphia was some of the best and most broadly educated of any country of America that by elevating the common knowledge to the common person, you elevated the general happiness of the entire area. So this is very important in my time, and I was would assume even in your time continues to be so. The University of Pennsylvania, however, this academy that we helped establish, is a wonderful resource for information about that time. I recommend that as also a... Uh, Website of the week. You may find it at www.upenn.edu/about/heritage.php, backslash, backslash, and it has history of their founding. <laughs> he that is good for making excuses is seldom good for anything else.
1: What do you see as wrong with modern education, and how would you fix it? Really, my position is hardly to tell you what you are doing wrong. However, I let, let
0: us deconstruct the issue. Something which I like to do with all issues that I, I face is take them apart into their basic segments. Now, if you have an issue with your education system, if it is not living up to what you think it should be, then the way to look at it, I feel, is to examine it in its various parts. Where does education occur, for example? Is it only in the schools? Or do you also educate at home, in outside culture? Uh, What part do your various aspects of society take uh, take a role in, in the education of your youth. Now, certainly, I would think that you would still find that the education of youth is of paramount importance. After all, these are the people who will be taking care of you in your old age. They will be the ones to solve the problems that you are unable to solve in your lifetime. They will be the ones preparing the next generation to help solve their problems. So, yes, education is paramount. If you expect to have a free people, as Thomas Jefferson says, and an ignorant people, you expect something that has never existed in the history of humankind. You must educate, and educate to the best of your ability your next generation. It is possibly the prime importance of society. So what I would do is I would examine every opportunity to educate your youth, and that would be from birth through the time they enter formal school. That would be, of course, in their school time, as well as at home time, as well as their social time as well. And really everything should be brought to that attention. Every uh, entertainment, every business venture should have an educational aspect to it, where the businesses of the town all take a part. The entire community should take part in all things that children interact with, their books, their their, their playtime, et cetera, should have some degree of aspect of education to it where they are adding, where the challenges, contests, et cetera, that they are doing help engage the mind and bring it into a state of excitement for learning new things and to help teach it. It should be remembered that whereas your professional educators, your school teachers now, are of course a blessed class and should be regarded with great respect by all levels of society, but also the parents, of course, every business, and the children themselves are most marvelous teachers for they interact with each other they interact with their immediate youngers and they interact with course with slightly older children and just because a child is younger does not mean that they do not have expertise indeed i have dealt with young children who know more than many adults in a particular field whether it be a, a musical prodigy etc that everyone should be made into a teacher just like everyone should practice art everyone should play a musical instrument or sing We should, even though you may not have a superior skill in it, practice those things. You must take part in beauty as the Enlightenment dictates. And this includes the beauty of education. Everyone should. Every business should take part. And if the entire society is bent around that, then the entire society will benefit from that.
1: What is the Junto?
0: Well, the Junto was simply a group of young men. They were all men at my time, but don't suppose that would be a necessity in your time, somewhat like your modern Rotary Club or Kiwanis, etc., who are a group of people dedicated to the common advancement, indeed, which that was the ideal of the Enlightenment, for the amelioration of the human condition to help improve life for all. We were a group of about 13, generally, who met mostly in private. We didn't necessarily make a lot of our work publicly known that it was our work. We simply helped introduce ideas. But by having a set agenda of bringing up things that needed doing, we would bring to each other notice of people who had succeeded in what they had done, or people who had failed in what they had done, which we thought might be wrong. We brought up people who were coming into town that we might be able to help by introductions and such. And with this common motivation towards public good, and as well as private improvement, we were able to constructively criticize each other's efforts to improve our writing and our debating styles so we could help, uh, through oration, convince others of better ideas to do things. We really helped improve the life of Philadelphia, and then by extension, life in the other areas of colonial America. We helped introduce the idea of the fire company, of Military Watch, which basically became uh, the police departments, certainly uh, the lending library idea began with with that meeting, and I recommend that you also form or join groups. For indeed, there is almost a limitless potential of good that groups can do if they are all motivated towards the same ideal. Now, I suppose we found that there was some limit in the size, so we limited our junto to just about thirteen members. But we encourage each of those members to form like groups, that they could continue their work in improving their areas. And and that seemed to work fairly well. Now, the American Philosophical Society was a larger organization. And really, the idea was just to share information. We were discovering many things. We have, of course, the the experiments of electricity going on later in my life once I was able to retire. And just the discovery and dissemination of information really was important. It was a group that Thomas Jefferson, uh, became the president of eventually, and other notables. And we shared information freely between between ourselves. This was not a collection of information gatherers for restriction, but rather somewhat like your open source code, your your. Um, I think it's called Google Docs which um, present uh, copyright free books for all to download and read, which is a marvelous, marvelous idea. The library taken to its extreme idea of universal dissemination. These are wonderful things and I, I think the American Philosophical Society still is in existence and I recommend you to their website and their, um, their existence and, and patronage. Um, needs for any spare money that you have. They are a marvelous group and should be emulated and supported. I believe there are like groups throughout the world. Indeed, universal dispersal of information was a goal and ideal of the Enlightenment and one that I encourage you to support and continue to enjoy in your time.
1: How much did classical knowledge come into play? The work of Archimedes, da Vinci, etc.?
0: quite a deal. Uh, We, as Newton said of his supposed genius and his accomplishments, that he had simply, if he was able to see further than others, it was because he was standing on the shoulders of giants. Now, I almost had a chance to meet Mr. Newton, but I, unfortunately, was not able to, quite to, but his sentiment I take quite to heart, that we each were able to accomplish what we did because we paid attention to the information of the past ages. Not to say that we limited ourselves to that. As I said, um, the classicists got it right. We had to make it fit. And people like Archimedes and Socrates and Cicero, the great mathematicians of the past, the the information really began to be made available again during the Renaissance, the rebirth of classical knowledge. And for the most modern person in my time, uh, who really mastered the classics, uh, see the works of Thomas Jefferson. You can cut many things from Mr. Jefferson, but you cannot remove uh, the classics from him and still retain anything that is of the essence of Thomas Jefferson. Um, I did study uh, people even like George Washington, who was not... A so much a classical thinker as Mr. Jefferson, but he studied Cicero. He studied Cincinnatus and looked to them for how to conduct themselves and how to think, how to examine situations, how to present themselves as they would be a leader of men. The classics also uh, in architecture and in structure of government, as well as in music and writing styles, these all influence us greatly, and we pattern a great many things. Uh, If you look at the Declaration of of Independence, for example, um, it could be criticized that there's no original thought in it. And I do not think that Mr. Jefferson would be insulted by that. He pulled from his classical knowledge to write that, from his knowledge not only of the classics, uh, as in ancient Greece and Rome, but also from the more modern classics, the work of Locke and Hume and other of the Scottish Enlightenment thinkers and, um, and many others of the French Enlightenment as well classics are where you go to see how it was done right, as I said, how the original people who gave such deep thought to this, and then you must apply it to your own situations. But understand that when you look at the past and see the problems which are so familiar to any age, and see how they work to improve, to ameliorate the basic human condition, and see what worked, know that it probably will work in your time. For even though you have great advances of science and, and in your mechanisms, in your electronics, the basic human condition remains the same and the problems at the heart remain the same.
1: What surprises you about the educational system of this day? And as a follow-up, when you do school presentations, what do the students ask that surprises you? Most
0: surprising, of course, is the speed and exactness of your communication. You no longer have to make long, handwritten transcriptions of conversations. You have this modern marvel of MP3 and podcasting, for example. You can record a conversation or a musical event and within minutes broadcast it so the entire world can hear it at almost no expense. This is a marvelous innovation and one that would quite shock us. Um, it sometimes took three to six months to get an answer back from our queries to Congress when we, when we were in France uh, trying to gain their support for the American Revolution, for example. Uh, it could take weeks and uh, months and days to send a letter even to close by locations if it arrived at all and wasn't lost. Uh, these things are marvelous. Your, your ability to communicate directly in conversation with people halfway around the world, uh, your ability to send and retrieve documents, Uh, where you have now on your iPhones and droids the ability to pull up documents that are not even at your location, but again, halfway around the world, translate from one language to another, if imperfectly, at least to the essence of the meaning. This is astounding, and and indeed, the realization of the Enlightenment in in that aspect. Uh, So this is, of course, the fact that every student has access to this information is should be a marvelous thing. You have no end of reading potential, and the main issue, of course, of selecting which things to read, where your librarian and your teachers can be of invaluable resource. As far as, uh, and then, the cheapness of producing works of exceptional value, and aiding in their distribution, it would be a, a godsend to us. Still, a great question I have is that you do not graduate from your schools, all who enter. The dropout rate is, is astounding. The simple tests given to people where they ask the location of some of your states or the basics of history, uh, some of your politicians claiming, for example, that the founding fathers ended slavery. Well, this is not just a matter of interpretation. This is a matter of pure factual error. Uh, we certainly didn't end slavery. Uh, well, to more is the pity and to our eternal shame. Um, how can a person be in such a public spotlight and not know these basic facts? I do not know. Um, but still, if your society dedicates itself to universal graduation, to universal continual education throughout life, then I cannot help but believe that your situations, your your continuing conundrums of poverty and disease and, and uh, hunger – Shall be ameliorated and, and lifted up, and that the world itself will become a more peaceful place. As far as questions, I am always delighted to be present at your schools today in our modern visitations. I am recording this in the lovely little town of Tanascot, Washington, and I am brought here to give a fundraising performance tonight, uh, that being Friday, the 11th of November, in your 2011. And it is in celebration of Veterans Day, which goes back to uh, celebrating, of course, all of the forces that have fought for this country, and indeed, for all those who fight for freedom the world around. I was able to present in the, another lovely little town called Sultan, and then four performances yesterday in the school here. The students astound me with their interest in the subtle Relationships, not just so much when we were born, but rather my relationship with my elder and younger brothers and sisters. I came from a very large family of 17, considering the some of the extended family, 17 born to my father, 13 of which actually survived childhood. Um, and they want to know about the relationships between each other, the, uh, our pets, uh, if we had any, et cetera. They want to know about who some of these people were that they heard of, George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, Katie Ray Green, uh, and the Stevensons, et cetera, and, and how families adjusted to such changes. They want to know about the deprivations in wartime, what the children did, the games that we played, how we related to each other, how we were able to uh, survive without being able to travel so very easily. We... Came from a three or five mile an hour world where the fastest mode of transportation was that of ship and horseback. And that if you wanted to go most places, you simply walked there. Uh, the, uh, the possibility of somebody like my wife, Deborah, never leaving her hometown of Philadelphia in her entire lifetime. She refused to cross the ocean to come to Europe with me or to join me in Europe. Uh, these things are very curious to them because they are so very used to travel, so very used to instantaneous communication, and they want to know how that difference felt. And I find that quite revealing. Um, it is never a easy task answering the questions because they really make one delve and bring together many aspects of one's life. And uh, they are always asking, there's always more questions to ask than I have possible time. So I try and um, get them to write their questions down and to send them to me. As a matter of fact, in the future podcasts, we hope to do an episode devoted to the questions that they pose uh, from this latest tour. But tonight's program will be, I'm hoping also to record parts of, and maybe we'll make a podcast of them as well, um, the adults also uh, ask interesting questions, although sometimes it, uh, it shows, um, their point of view more. Uh, children tend to be more open and, uh, just want to know the answer. Adults sometimes ask questions like, what do I think of our socialist president? And obviously there's an agenda there, uh, which I, I, I don't necessarily understand as much as, uh, I don't understand why they're trying to gain a point with their question. Why not simply ask the question, but, um. And Sometimes it is asking about uh, how many illegitimate children I have, for they have heard I have you know, dozens and dozens, where I have just just the one. And so I, I think sometimes adults come in with a bit more of, a, I think the term I used was agenda. Um, but all questions are welcomed, and I try and answer them all as honestly as possible.
1: Thank you, Dr. Franklin. I look forward to continuing these conversations for some time to come.
0: Good citizen Ziegler. I am honored by your assistance in this process. I look forward to a fruitful Junto-like experience of exploration and publication with you and because of you. And to you, dear listeners, our thanks for your patience and patronage. Until next time, I remain, as I have always been, your most obedient and humble servant, B. Franklin.
1: Let's read some letters.
0: Letters to and from where we look at period writing. This is from the London Gazette, 1729, December 20, number 6840. This is from an actual copy I have of the London Gazette. Copy in that it is a printing of that era, not a copy from Made Modern. And it has a series of news notes from different places from Europe. So from Vienna, December 10, NS, Monsieur de Buffet, the French secretary here, entertained on Tuesday last all the foreign ministers and other persons of distinction with a splendid supper, which was followed by a ball on occasion of the birth of the Dauphin, that being the new prince of France. Count Kinsky. The Grand Chancellor of the Bohemian Chancery is shortly to be married to the Countess of Palfi.
1: By failing to prepare, you are preparing to fail. And now it's time to talk with the man who presents Benjamin Franklin, scholar and educator G. Robin Smith. So now, tell us a little bit about your education.
0: I received my AA from Lynn Benton Community College down in between Albany and Corvallis, Oregon, in 75. And in 77, I graduated from Eastern Washington University with a degree cum laude, big deal, uh, in theater arts with a lot of also um, class time in the dance and music program, which I enjoyed very much. And then moved to Seattle. I've also attended and done coursework at... A number of other universities, Emporia, Kansas, uh, Oregon State University, uh, and Seattle University, Pacific, was it? Uh, Seattle University and Seattle Pacific University, sorry. Uh, various classes and various topics. I, like Franklin, believe in a lifelong education, never giving up, uh, despite <laughs> sometimes the wishes of the teachers who became frustrated with my style of questioning there is a similarity between Ben and I there. Um, but uh, those are my, my my main credits. I continue to do a lot of homeschooling, I guess you could call it, just my own independent studies of Franklin, the Revolution, uh, English Renaissance, Shakespeare, et cetera, are my main focuses. That in music. And we will include in the show notes uh, the website for my music experimentation site, which has some sea shanties with a group I'm in, crock and roll and also some um, lullabies and experimental work on ambient music, etc. I believe strongly in interactive education, hands-on interactive education especially. As the quote says, "...tell me and I forget, teach me and I remember, involve me and I learn. There is nothing more indelible in education." In a hands-on interactive program. So anything that can be taught, can be taught interactively, can be taught in a way that involves every sense, every bit of a student's imagination. And the more you make something interactive, I think the more it becomes lodged in not only their memory, but their understanding. And uh, so I recommend this style, and this is a style I continue to try and perfect myself. I have to give a shout out And a best wishes to the Missoula Children's Theater. I was on tour of them in the 81-82 season many years ago. But I really saw firsthand the effect that this type of education, because not only did we teach the plays that we were doing that way, but also teaching workshops in that manner of involving them as much as possible. And I saw amazing changes in the students. And also in the way that other people, even the teachers and parents, looked at students once you gave them the chance of really experimenting, really getting something uh, in in a bone-deep manner through uh, that style of hands-on learning. And it transformed lives. And so I continue to recommend it.
1: What is it you would do to improve modern education?
0: Very simply, because of course it's a very complex process, but... The simplest way is more hands-on, interactive as much as possible. Also, to gain the local support, the professionals we have, the the teachers do a marvelous job, but I think we are at fault for looking at our schools and thinking they are handling the entire package. I drop them off at age 4 or 5, I'll come back and pick them up when they're 17, and they'll be educated, and that's just impossible. It's like saying they get all the food that they need. From school, that they get all the clothing that they need from school. No, school I think at most is maybe one third of, of a person's education. Everything that they do should only be a third. And then from age zero to six, it's community and family. And as I mentioned earlier, every business should have as a p- part of their of their business plan, how are we going to interact with our community? How are we going to improve education? And every business product, should have an educational nature to it in the labeling in in their websites etc how can we improve children's education if a business doesn't have that as part of their plan why are they in business if they're not here to if they're here just to make money I, I i don't know if that's really business reason enough to give them the benefits of being a business in this world they need to be there to make money and to help improve education one of my sponsors the the small family owned hardware store hardwick and sons they they sponsor me, at least. And you know, I go out into schools and do everything that I do to try and improve it. They have an educational aspect. They I use some of their product to go out and teach people about the history of tools, etc. They, if they can do it, as small as they are, then any other business can as well and should. Uh, so public education and private homeschooling as part of that public education process and every aspect of business and cultural life should all lean towards the education of our populace and the world. Simple. Now, the problem to make it happen. I can look at a seed and know what it should grow into, but getting it into an oak, that is the issue. But it can be done with time and persistence.
1: And very ambitious. The only thing more expensive than education
0: is ignorance. Compared to the alternative, the essential becomes the only viable option. You look at something like the uh, the tests that are given in some of, of, of the states. I was uh, talking to a representative of United Way several years ago, and they told me about tests that were given in Texas at about the age of eight or, or so, and they use the results to not find out where to intervene with a child's education to give them the best chance, but simply to determine how many prison beds that they would have to build. Because everybody scoring at X level or below were probably destined for the prisons. And that's that's appalling to me that if you know those children are headed for trouble, you should intercede with help, not with prisons, not with bars, but with you know, with barcodes, with, with with the ability to uh you know to intercede to give them every chance. It is much cheaper to educate someone to success rather than to incarcerate them.
1: Can you tell us about some of the fundraising programs you're working on?
0: Well, there's the current one where I'm working for the Community Center here in Tenasket, Washington tonight. Uh, We're doing a public performance and going to be letting people know about it, and we've sold a good number of tickets for that. Uh, That type of program is, of course, available year-round. We also have a, a program scheduled at Seattle's ACT Theatre in June, and we're going to be doing more of these concentrated tours. The June date is going to be the centerpiece of our early summer tour. We're going to be doing, um, in addition to just year-round availability, these windows of a week or 10 days, where we're going to try and concentrate as many performances as possible. That way we can get rid of the travel fees, the room and board fees, and just do booking after booking and community after community and try and get as many uh, fundraisers and school presentations as possible so people can contact us about those. And those are always available. We also have, of course, our uh, shared resources. The the performance at ACT Theater is one where nonprofits can participate. They can uh, register with us and simply they tell people about the presentation and we take the money that we save in advertising and divide that we were going to take all of the profits from that presentation and divide it up amongst the nonprofits who help us advertise uh, there will be a ballot available at the presentation, and people will be able to mark off the nonprofit that they heard about the performance from and then I simply divide up all the profits to uh, those number of votes and if one group gets one vote then They will get one vote's share. If another group gets 100 votes, they will get 100 vote's share. And we hope to give out around $6,000. It depends, of course, how many people actually do show up for the three performances we have scheduled. But we like working with nonprofits. We like creative ways of doing this. And, of course, we are available also for just straight benefit performances where you bring me in, and we have different ways of making that affordable for people as well. And we are happy to go anywhere.
1: What other educational programs are you working on?
0: Oh, work in theater, history, civics, acting, Chautauqua, the type of performance that I do with Ben and others, Uh, in classes in music and dance and writing, poetry, uh, writing in period styles, what's called the idiolect. For a fuller account of what idiolect is and how to change yours to make your characters' voices sound more like they're from a different time, Uh, please go to www.onthepage.tv. There is the L.A. screenwriter consultant, Pilar Alessandra. She interviews me for almost an hour on just that very subject, how to change one's idiolect. And classes in and about and around the subject of Shakespeare, him, his writing style, how he possibly wrote as well as his plays, of course.
1: Thank you, Robin. Looks like that's all the time we have for today, so I think we should wrap up.
0: Thanks, Aaron. I look forward to working with you here and in hearing your future episodes of Chop Bard, The Cure for Boring Shakespeare, at www.chopbard.com.
1: And thanks to you, listeners. Let us know you are out there. Write to ben at ben-franklin.org and put Ben Franklin for President in the subject line. Thank you for your time. Your most obedient and humble servants,
0: G. Robin Smith and Aaron Ziegler. Safe journeys there and back. I'd like to thank the perpetual sponsors for Ben Franklin for president. Thanks to Hardwick & Sons Incorporated, the kind of hardware tool and more store Ben would have loved. Find them at www.ehardwicks.com. Also, the Interactive History Company, bringing you history you can grasp hands-on interactive historical educational programs since 1982. www.interactivehistory.net Genius without education is like silver
1: in the mine. You've been listening to Benjamin Franklin for President, an audio almanac of the life, times, thoughts, and relevance of Benjamin Franklin, as portrayed by Chautauqua performer G. Robin Smith. For further information about Ben's performances in person or for internet visits with Dr. Franklin, go to www.ben-franklin.org. With humble thanks and great respect, we remain your obedient and humble servants, etc.